Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Stephen Hussey is a board-certified chiropractor and functional medicine practitioner. He has a bachelor's degree in health and wellness promotion from the University of North Carolina, Asheville, as well as a doctorate of chiropractic and a master's in human nutrition and functional medicine from the University of Western States. In addition to working as a chiropractor in clinical practice, Dr. Hussey has worked with people all over the world using the power of food, lifestyle change, and personal environment modification to change lives every day. He is the author of The Health Evolution, Why Understanding Evolution is the Key to Vibrant Health, and Understanding the Heart, Uncommon Insights into Our Most Commonly Diseased Organ. In his downtime, he likes to be outdoors, playing sports, reading, and writing. Dr. Hussey can be found on his website at www.resourceyourhealth.com or on social media at Dr. Stephen Hussey. Dr. Stephen Hussey, what an honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Dude, you have absolutely blown my mind. I have followed you for quite a while now, and some of the things that you have learned and discovered in your journey are absolutely like paradigm-shifting, mind-blowing kind of stuff. Do you get that a lot? Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and I, I like to point out, you know, that, yeah, uh, the stuff I put out there is, is is different and everything, but it's not my work. It's the work of a lot of others, and I've just put it together into a cohesive way that we can understand how it relates to how we can achieve health. So Sure. Yeah. Well, I appreciate all of those people for doing the research and I appreciate you for collecting all of that research and making it really available. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the the work of the paleoarchaeologist uh, Mickey Bendor. Um, mm-hmm. As far as evolution goes, I know that's a, a huge topic of yours, but one of the things I really love about his research is it's very unifying. It explains lots of different things in lots of different fields. And I really appreciate that. And I think your work um, does that as well, where where we have like a lot of paradoxes or things that don't make sense, especially with things like the heart, you kind of go through it and explain everything in a, in a way that really connects the dots as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was trying to do because, you know, it, it all stems from my own health journey. Um, and I was just trying to quote unquote, understand the heart, uh, this disease that I'm predisposed to. And so um, it, it really stems from that. And, and the way I lay it out is just the way that I learned it, the way it makes sense to me. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe that would help others too. So I put it down in a book and, and, uh, here we are. Yeah, it definitely helps. I really appreciate that. I do want to ask you about your story, but before we do, I do have a question about your first book and, and why evolution is so important. Here we are, it's 2022. Supposedly we know more about the human body now than we ever did in the past. You know, for somebody that doesn't appreciate evolution as a way to learn about ourselves currently, what's the point of trying to look back and see how we've evolved versus using, you know, whatever medical system and all these amazing devices and techniques that we have today to analyze our health just as it is today? Uh, The benefit in my perspective is that um, instead of trying to, you know, instead of trying to learn and understand everything the way it is right now, as far as the human body goes and trying to master that, which I don't think we ever will. And I think it's a bit uh, egotistical to think that we'll ever fully understand all the intricacies of the human body um, and nature in general. Instead of that, we're, we're looking in the past at how things formed. Um, so that could be all the way back to um, our mitochondria and how those formed, which they formed well before we were humans were even a thing. Uh, and so understanding that um, gives us insight today into, into how um, our mitochondria function and what keeps them healthy. Um, so it, it kind of, it, evolution is something that, that takes a very, very long time uh, to happen uh, as far as like the development of characteristic. And so 
those things are very deeply embedded and ingrained in our physiology. And so if we learn about those things and how, um, how we evolved and, and what forced us to evolve, um, then we can look back and say, okay, well, you know, for, you know, 2 million years, it took, it took um, this stimulus to evolve this certain mechanism. And then in the past 10,000 years, uh, something changed, right? And you can see that it makes way more sense to do the thing today, or at least get as close to the thing today that, that, that was evolving for 2 million years versus the thing that's normal for the last 10,000 years. And that's why it's so valuable because uh, we can look at that and see what, um, what would be way more beneficial as far as our physiology because of what's so evolutionary ingrained in us uh, over those long periods of time. Yeah, right. So things like, I don't know, blaming saturated fat for causing heart disease. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. When, when humans and pre-humans were eating that for a very, very long time. Uh, and it's actually part of a big part of the diet that actually, you know, caused the, um, uh, I guess, uh, evolution of what we are today, um, part of what it did. So yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go back and let's hear your story. How did you first become interested in health? Yeah. So, I mean, just like a lot of people in, in the health space, it, it was inspired by my own health journey because I was, um, I was kind of sick as a child, you know, I had a lot of chronic ailments, uh, everything from a lot of inflammatory issues. So chronic hives, I used to like break out in humongous hives all over my body and the doctors didn't really, you know, know what, know why or know what to tell us. Um, and I had asthma and I had allergies and I had IBS and all these inflammatory things that ultimately ended up with autoimmune type uh, one diabetes where my body kind of attacked the cells that make insulin. So I no longer make insulin. And, um, and so my parents and I were kind of thrust into this world of Western medicine about how to manage and, and control these conditions. And, um, and so, and that was fine. I mean, they, they kept me alive and obviously I'm grateful for, for that kind of stuff. Um, but as I grew up and, um, started learning that how I lived my life had an impact on my ability to manage these conditions or even cure some of them, completely get rid of them. Um, I started to question, well, why wasn't I told this before, um, from my doctors and things like that? Why wasn't I told that if I change my diet, it's easier to manage blood sugars or, um, how I can get rid of this inflammation by certain lifestyle changes. And so, um, I started, you know, investigating that kind of stuff and self-experimenting, um, with health and things. And, uh, you know, kind of, um, as I went through college and, and chiropractic school and just on my own research, I, I focused mostly on, um, just health in general was my interest, but I focused a lot on the heart because I was told as a type one diabetic, I'm heavily predisposed to heart disease. And so I had accumulated a lot of information, a lot of uh, knowledge about the heart um, and a lot of things that were contrary to what I've been told. And so the two, two books that we mentioned here are the, are the result of all that, that uh, interest and, and research. Um, and uh, you know, eventually I decided to put them down in, in writing and, and here we are. Yeah, that's great. I'm so grateful that you have gone through that journey and very difficult one, but again, decided to, you know, learn, dig deeper and also share your message. Um, I do want to focus on your latest book before we do, let's, let's maybe summarize what's going on today with heart disease. Where are we at in 2022 with heart disease? Um, have we made much progress? No, not really. So, you know, like heart disease, it's interesting that, um, you know, back in the early 1900s, there wasn't really a field of cardiology. Um, you know, there was a few cardiologists and they were just kind of like these uh, outliers that were just interested in the heart, but there wasn't really this whole big field of cardiology because heart disease wasn't really a thing. Uh, it was very, it was kind of more rare. Uh, and then around the 1940s and fifties, um, it started to increase quite a bit. Uh, and so that's when this, this idea of heart disease took off and the specialty of cardiology really took off. Um, and, um, and so despite, you know, all the interest in heart disease, there was a, uh, there was a lot of, I think, bad science done that kind of 
um, blamed it on certain things, mainly saturated fat, animal foods, cholesterol, things like that. And, um, and that approach, um, has been kind of the approach since the beginning. Uh, and we can see where it's gotten us, whereas heart disease is, um, you know, probably the number one disease in the world. And it continues to grow, uh, more and more people tend to get heart disease at earlier and earlier ages. Um, and, uh, and so we're spending billions and billions of dollars combating this disease within Western medicine and, we're getting nowhere. You know, we have all these, you know, the newest medications and the newest procedures, um, top of the line technologies and everything, yet heart disease is still skyrocketing. So obviously those things are not the solution. They're not putting a dent in the amount of, of heart disease we're, we're, we're seeing. Um, and so when I learned all that, I was like, we need a new approach. Something, something's wrong here. Something's amiss. Uh, and I started diving in and, and this is, um, what we've, what we found, you know, what we're going to talk about, what I found. So, yeah, definitely. It's just, it's, it sucks to look back and see, you know, the studies that were done, the ones that were done and were done very poorly, or even the stories of the good studies that came out disproving the theory to begin with. And those studies are just buried. They just get buried and, and nobody gets to see the data. And here we are 50, 60, 70 years later, and we're in a worse spot. It sucks. Yeah. And yeah, there's actually, you know, direct evidence that, you know, studies that were done early on as far as dietary interventions and heart disease um, and, and fatty acid consumption, um, when they didn't get the result they wanted, they didn't publish them. That's right. Um, and and sometimes they were published, but they were published in very small journals that nobody yeah. reads. That's right. Um, or they were published, uh, you know, 15 years later after the ship had sailed and the, the theory was already out there, you know. So, um, yeah, some, some interesting things. There's People don't know this, but uh, there's a guy named Ben Goldacre who has spoken out about this a lot, that a lot of the studies that are done that don't get the result that um, that the researchers were looking for um, are not published. Uh, he says there's no, there's no system where you have to submit that you're going to do a study to make sure that it gets published regardless of the outcome. There's, there's nothing like that. So if they get to the end and they didn't like it, they just trash it. Um, so when I, when I go into the research and I search whatever to, to see what the research says on a certain topic, I don't know that all the research that has actually been done on it is actually been published. <laughs> so, so I don't know if I'm getting an accurate, all I'm getting is an accurate um, show of what the research says about the published studies on the topic, not the ones that were done and, and haven't been published. I did not know that. That is mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, scary. So, Cause everybody puts so much emphasis on research where we have to realize that there are shortcomings because it's all done by humans, but also there's shortcomings in the system of how it's, uh, how it's, uh, researches, um, uh, the methods and the publications. Yeah, that is absolutely mind blowing. That's crazy. I've never connected those dots. Um, I do want to focus our conversation on a post that you made a few days ago, which I thought highlighted some of the key parts of your book and some of the realizations that you've come to that might be a little bit more unconventional or something that people are not really talking about. And I want to kind of read them word for word. And if, if you're willing, we can kind of riff on each one. You can kind of explain each one. I, yeah. I, and I'm going to put it in the best order that I possibly can. And so I, let's start with the cholesterol and animal food. So from the post, animal foods increase cholesterol and blood is not the driving force of heart disease um yeah so so there's really no evidence that uh you know that um eating animal foods or eating cholesterol drives up um cholesterol in the blood um there's i mean if you fast cholesterol is going to go up 
Uh, there's one study that shows that if you fast, I think it was like for seven days in the study, the cholesterol went up like 45% of what it was. Like it was, it went really high. And that's because it's trying to deliver energy and your body's having to shift over to another energy source, which is fat. And that's what carries the, the triglycerides around the, the fatty acids. So um, your body is increasing the cholesterol so they can deliver energy while you're fasting. Um, but it's, it, but your body also makes cholesterol. The liver makes a ton of cholesterol. Um, and so your body needs it, but it's not necessarily that when you eat cholesterol, it drives up your, um, um, your, your cholesterol in your blood. Um, for some people that seems to happen. Um, but I think it may be due more to like people being on like in a low carb state, a ketogenic state that, that drives that up, um, or other things. But so the idea from an evolutionary standpoint, a philosophical standpoint, it doesn't make any sense that a food that we've been eating for literally, you know, millions of years, even before modern humans evolved, um, would be the thing that's causing heart disease. Because like I mentioned before, heart disease is this kind of newer thing since the forties and fifties. Um, and, uh, and so, so we're not looking at the right thing. We're looking at what, what changed in the forties and fifties, what changed for humans right then. And it wasn't the consumption of cholesterol or saturated fat or animal foods, um, that, that had been going on for a long time. So philosophically, it doesn't make sense. And then when you just look at the research, especially, I mean, it, all the, all the systematic reviews of the randomized controlled trials and, and other types of research, um, you can find that most of the research that says that cholesterol causes heart disease is associational. So it's epidemiology, which is the lowest form of research for a reason. Um, it's because it can't show causation. It can only show that two things are happening at the same time. So you have high cholesterol and you have heart disease. It does, you can't show that one's causing the other. Um, and so, um, we can also find plenty of associational research that shows that high LDL does not cause heart disease. And people with higher LDL have, you know, lower all-cause mortality and lower rates of heart disease and lower cancer. So which ones do we believe? And the point is you can't believe either one. You have to test them out. Um, and interestingly, um, this did happen. So when this theory first came out, it was it was an incorrect theory, but it was very heavily tested. And and Nina Teichel says that it's probably the, uh, the most tested uh, nutritional theory in, in research, just because back in the day, they spent so much money doing it. Whereas today, nutritional research costs way too much money. Um, but when they looked at, when they were replacing, um, when they replaced saturated fat with unsaturated fat in these people's diets, they got more heart disease, more all cause mortality. And this happened in five or six different studies that happened around that time, like in the sixties and seventies, um, like sixties or the seventies. And so, um, so even when we look at the research, there's no evidence there that cholesterol causes heart disease. Um, and the questions I like to ask that really throw a kink into things, and it's not like they're, you know, quoted research or anything, but it's like if cholesterol, LDL cholesterol or total cholesterol, whichever, um, is so such a driving force in atherosclerosis and, and cholesterol is present everywhere in the blood, then why do we only see atherosclerosis in certain places? Yeah. Like, why do we only, why do we see it so much in the coronary arteries and nowhere else or in bifurcations and, and, and not in veins at all? You know, and the, the short answer is that there's more pressure in those areas. Um, but that doesn't mean that that um, cholesterol is causing the the issue. Um, it's just it just doesn't make sense from that that point of view. It's been a few years since I heard you be the one to say that. 
And I, it had never occurred to me like that. That is mind blowing. That is completely shifting the paradigm. And it's interesting. You mentioned the LDL going up on low carbohydrate. We have to, you know, nod our hats to Dave Feldman and the work that he's done. I mean, a few years ago, he stepped on stage and predicted that his LDL levels would be vastly different based on fasting. And, and when your body is fasting, the way I understand it, you need to mobilize more fats and more cholesterol from inside the body. So the liver will package them up. Hence you'll have more, you know, volume inside the LDL or I'm sorry, inside the, in the, the LDL particles essentially. And that yeah. looks like your cholesterol is always high, but it can fluctuate so quickly depending on what you eat or don't eat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and from day to day too. So that's the other thing too, is when we look at testing and we say, we say we test someone's blood and their cholesterol is high. Like that's one snapshot in time. Um, you know, and Dave Feldman has showed us that cholesterol changes very rapidly, you know, um, you know, from, from day to day and he can change it pretty dramatically within three days. Um, and so it's not like this static thing that like, if you test high for cholesterol or low for cholesterol, that it's going to stay that way tomorrow. Um, and, and like you said, like, depending on what we, what we eat and, um, and, and, and various other things, like how much we're fasting or, like, or don't eat, you know, um, then it's going to change pretty rapidly. And so it makes no sense to blame this whole disease, this complex biological disease on this one aspect of the body, this one biomarker. Yeah. Um, it's really, really short-sighted. And unfortunately, I think it's been a huge distraction into what is actually causing heart disease. Um, everybody's so focused on cholesterol and then therefore so focused on diet, um, which is an important part of disease in general, but it's not the only part. And it's what everybody focuses on. Everybody's like, oh, diet and exercise, diet and exercise, which are important things to pay attention to, but there's so much more that's, that's been, um, untouched and, and isn't talked about. Yeah. So interesting. So if I'm, if I'm in the pharmaceutical companies or I'm in the medical system, why would I want to continue to focus my attention on LDL cholesterol and keep pushing that message forward? Oh, uh, mainly. So mainly because it, it drives sales of pharmaceuticals. Um, you know, so there's this interesting, a uh, little story that people don't know is that I think it was 1984. Um, they put together, they had this, you know, meeting um, on this committee and they decided that cholesterol was bad. Um, and then they put together this um, national education program for, to educate physicians on how cholesterol is bad and how to lower it and things like that. And the pharmaceutical companies jumped on that. Um, and they, they came in and they said, um, okay, well, we've got to sponsor these things to, to convince them that to drive down what's the recommended um, levels for cholesterol and LDL. And so, you know, it started out that it started out that, um, they were saying, oh, cholesterol, like a total or LDL cholesterol could be 250. That's fine. Um, and then it was like, okay, now 200, uh, and then they went down to 150 and then 100. And now as they say below 100. So basically what that tells me is that we have no idea what it's really supposed to be. Um, and that the, the, um, the motivation of the pharmaceutical companies is what drove it down to be that low because the lower it is, the more people can, they can then test high for, for high cholesterol and then you can prescribe medications. And it's actually, it's actually seen as malpractice or not doing the standard of care if you don't recommend a statin drug to someone who has high cholesterol levels. Um, and, and even in some cases, like in my case, I was recommended a statin drug when I was, um, oh gosh, in my mid twenties, even though I didn't have wow. high cholesterol or anything, wow. it was just, it was the standard of care for anybody who'd been type one diabetic. As long as I had, you know, even though I don't think that cholesterol causes heart disease, my cholesterol was normal according to them. Um, but they still recommended that because that's the standard of care. Same with the blood pressure medication. Um, I was recommended that because that's the standard of care. Wow. 
Yeah, that's that's just crazy. You did give me a good idea when you're talking about the changing levels. If I just make the net bigger when I go play hockey, I'm probably going to score a lot more goals. So eventually, yeah. if we can get up to like a soccer sized net, I'll be a superstar. <laughs> I'll finally get to play in the NHL. This would be great. So I appreciate that. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> wow. Absolutely crazy. Okay. Next one that you put on there. This is about heart attacks. And it says, well, actual blockages in the arteries do happen. Many heart attacks occur without a blockage. Yeah. So there's actually a lot of evidence that, um, that heart attacks like tissue death happens and they go in there and there's, there's no blockage whatsoever. Some people don't even have stenosis. Um, and so everybody thinks that, you know, this, um, you know, this, this artery narrows, the stenosis happens. Uh, we get this buildup of, of people think cholesterol and everything. And, and that slowly narrows the artery, um, over time. And then it ends up blocking it and we get a heart attack. However, there are plenty of examples um, and of people who have like a 90% blockage in a run of marathons. Um, so there's, there's no way that they could run um, a marathon with 10% of blood to an area of their heart. Um, and, and so that, you know, begs the question of, you know, when can a heart attack happen without a blockage? Um, and are those, is that stenosis, um, really an issue in, in general. So there's this researcher named Giorgio Baraldi who did a lot of work with this. And he, he did these, what called, what he called plastic cast studies where he, you know, you ever been to like the body world exhibits yeah, where crazy. they, you know, they, they, yeah. Where they like, um, they take an organ or even like the animals inside out or whatever, like where they take the whole animal and they, they have this map of the arterial system. They fill it with like this plastic material. That's like a, a liquid and then it hardens and then dissolve away the rest of the tissue. And you're left with this cast of the arterial system. And, um, and that's what he did with hearts, um, for a lot of his career. And he found that anywhere that there was a, um, more than 70% stenosis of a coronary artery, that the body had fully compensated that area with collateral arteries enough to, to supply the heart with enough blood. So, um, that shows us that why that shows us why the, the studies on, um, outcomes with, um, uh, with like stent placements, like elective stent placements, not emergency ones, but elective stent placements and bypass surgeries don't really lead to better outcomes for people. They don't, they don't help them, um, live longer or have less mortality in the long run. And, um, that's because the body's already bypassed it itself. It, it's done that pretty quickly. Cause I've got studies that show that the body can do that within four days. That's remarkable. Um, yeah. So, um, so that's why, um, but then, you know, so heart attacks do happen though when a, when a, a clot can form um, and block an artery. So, like, say, let's say some of that stenosis breaks off or some atherosclerosis breaks off, and um, that inflammation causes a clot to form, and that's kind of an acute heart attack with a blockage. But then the ones without a blockage, um, there's tissue death, and Baraldi found this all the time. He found that you know because he he did autopsies of people with who had heart attacks and ones who didn't, and um, you know he found that sometimes the heart attack occurred. Um, in a totally different area than where the stenosis was. Um, and there was no, no blood flow restriction there. And so, um, it happens because of three different things. One, we have an imbalance in the autonomic nervous system, which is, um, you know, our fight or flight versus rest and digest parasympathetic, sympathetic nervous system. Um, and, um, high amounts of oxidative stress, which is when, um, the body has too many free radicals floating around. Um, which are our molecules with an unpaired electron that really want to be paired. And these are kind of a natural process of physiology. Um, but when they get too many, they can become an issue. And the other one is being, have being poor. I'm sorry. That's what? when they have the, the free radicals have those crazy chain reactions, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. So like they, they have an unpaired electron and they really, really want to be paired. Um, and so they, they go and they steal the electron from, from anywhere they can. Um, and so, uh, in, in doing that, they also cause damage to a tissue and create another free radical yeah. in the process, Got it. which I is the chain it. reaction that Got happens. Okay, um, you. and so, um, so that, and then being metabolically inflexible. So, you know, having, or at least having less ability to burn fatty acids, um, and your body is kind of, um, uh, predominantly burns carbohydrate. Um, so when those three things, when those three imbalances happen, there's a situation where we can get a surge and a stress response to the heart. And that can create a situation where the heart is forced to burn more glucose than it wants to. It's always burning some glucose, but it really prefers fatty acids and ketones and it burns that predominantly. But when we get a surge of adrenaline to the heart and we get a, we don't get the balance, um, uh, non-stress signal to the heart, which is always supposed to be balanced. We're always supposed to get both at the same time. Um, when that doesn't happen because oxidative stress blocks that from happening, um, and we're, we're metabolically inflexible. So our body is used to burning more carbohydrate. Then we can get a surge of carbohydrate burning or glucose burning in the heart. And that can create lactic acid. Um, that can create hydrogen ions that, that create kind of a muscle burn in the heart, which we know is angina. Um, people call that chest pain angina, but it's the same kind of muscle burn you get if you went for a run and your legs started to burn. Um, but the only thing is, is that when your legs start to burn during that run that you can stop if it gets too bad, but the heart can't stop contracting. And so, um, so yeah, then, uh, when that happens, um, it actually creates this swelling because of that lactic acid. And just like in your, in your muscle tissue, it creates a little bit of swelling and then the blood can't get into the area because the swelling is too much pressure to push it out. And we get this hypoxic stagnant blood sitting in this area of the heart that causes tissue death. Um, and, and that's the heart attack that we see without a blockage. And it's very, very common, way more common than, than we think. Really? Wow. Um, yeah, I wasn't aware that, there, is it more common than having a blockage? Um, I, I don't, I don't know the numbers on that. Cause I don't know that, you know, I don't know that this without a blockage is, is necessarily, you know, understood in Western medicine. So I don't know that they have numbers that, that gotcha. compare that. Yeah, gotcha. um, it's yeah, just another times, way that it can happen. Yeah. And lots of times, you know, they go in and they see tissue death in there and, and they say, oh, there must've been a blockage at some point your body dissolved it or something like that. You know, um, when in reality, there was no evidence of atherosclerosis anywhere in that person. Um, so it doesn't, doesn't really make sense to say that. Um, but yeah, so yeah. Interesting. I think we can draw a lot of conclusions from the way we should be living our lives. And, and as we're wrapping some of these things up, I do want to go over some of the practical things that we can take from this and some lifestyle mm -hmm. factors that we can focus on. But it does seem like an imbalance in that in the in the you know the sympathetic parasympathetic nervous system way too far over to the sympathetic side, meaning stress is just way too high all the time. Is that correct? Yeah. So we can create imbalances in the autonomic nervous system because we 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 do too many things that, um, create a sympathetic response and not enough things that stimulate a parasympathetic response or stimulate the, the vagal nerve. Um, we're stimulating the, the sympathetic nervous system rather than the balancing out of the vagus nerve. And that's just a result of, of modern society, uh, and, and the, um, the lifestyles that we live and, and, and the fact that evolutionarily we're the only species that can think our way into a stress response. That's right. You know, there's, there's just, we have this higher level thinking that has done us so much good um, and it's gotten us where we are, but it also, um, predisposes us to this imbalance in the autonomic nervous system because we're literally in our heads all the time. And we could see something stressful happening to someone across the world and it could contribute to our stress response, or we could see something, or we could have something stressful happen to us. And instead of forgetting about it within 10 minutes or so, like most animals, we can think about it all the time for months, years. 
Um, and we can fear that it may happen again. And that contributes to this heightened sympathetic response um, to um, to our environments. Yeah. I mean, it's, so 2020 pandemic happened. I got so sucked into the news cycle at the time that I started like really stressing out about, you know, coronavirus case counts in some county in India or something. You know what I mean? Like all these yeah. things that are really terrible happening around the world, like it's okay to be informed about it, but, but like you get stressed out about that. And it's just a thought you walk outside, like everything's okay. Everything's fine. You know, but it's yeah, easy exactly. to get sucked into all of that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, like, you know, there's, there's research out there and there's um, um, information out there that suggests that humans are designed to be in these kind of small nomadic groups, you know, uh, maybe 150 people or, or less. Um, and so when we, you know, and we only like, if you look at the like, nomadic people, like on um, in Papua New Guinea, like, you know, they, most people don't really go more than 10 miles from where they were born in their yeah. life, you know? And it's just like modern society has, has, you know, ramped us up into this, this modern way of living so quickly. That there's no way we could have evolved to the constant stimuli and the con all the different things that we have to manage in our life. And I'm not saying that it's, that it's bad that we shouldn't do those things. We just need to understand that our physiology is not quite evolved to handle all that. Yeah. It's not quite evolved to handle 600 Facebook friends or, or, you know, like news from all over the world, you know, or even, even all over our state, you know, it's just, it's, uh, I don't know where you're from, but like in the States, you know, thinking about it, like a state, like that's, that's, that's a lot of, um, that's a lot of happenings for your body and your, in your mind to be handling and, and dealing with. And, and um, it can be quite overwhelming for our system. And that's why we see all these diseases that are so, um, uh, associated with, with stress, you know, and, and people say, oh yeah, it's stress, but they don't really understand that. Yes, it really is stress. And it's the stress in the form of this imbalance in the autonomic nervous system. And, and it has to, it links in with our emotional state, which is why, you know, which is why our heart is so affected by this, because our heart is what's perceiving our emotional state. That's why we, that's why we say, I love you with all my heart. And I gave it all my heart, that kind of stuff. Um, your, your vagus nerve is, is, is extremely intricately, you know, connected to the heart and our emotional state is being conveyed to your brain through the vagus nerve. Um, and, um, and so when our emotional state and is, is, um, on high alert all the time, um, that, that specifically affects the heart, especially in the way I was talking about with the imbalance and autonomic nervous system and that imbalance signaling to the heart that can cause heart attacks without a block or wow. without, with no blockage whatsoever. Yeah. So interesting. I love that explanation. Another thing that I learned from you a few years ago that absolutely blew my mind, never even really occurred to me. We're talking about all these diseases of the heart yet heart cancer, heart cancer is extremely rare because of special characteristics of the heart that protect it. Um, wow. Like, I never have thought about that. You never hear of anybody getting heart cancer. Why is that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So heart cancer is very rare. It does happen. Uh, people do get it, but um, it's, it's very rare. And it's even more rare that cancer is uh, the primary source of the cancer is the heart tissue. Um, it's, it's uh, much more likely that it metastasizes from somewhere else. And it's a secondary center. Um, but it's really rare that, it, that the heart is the primary source. And, and the main I guess the, the short answer to that is that the heart cells don't divide and, and cancer is notorious as this, you know, rapidly dividing, um, cellular growth, right? These, these cells that are rapidly dividing, creating this growth, this tumor, um, and the heart cells can't do that. However, specific. So, so when that happened, um, I think that like when, when the heart cells, you know, evolved to give up their, like, once they get to a certain point in development, they, they, they gave up their ability to divide. That's why heart attacks are such a big deal because when heart cells die, you can't just make new ones. 
you know, you got to repair the ones that are there or try and repair them. Or, or if they're beyond repair, then you've lost them. Um, but since hard sales can't divide, they gave up this, um, they gave that up uh, because they're so metabolically active. The heart's constantly contracting. That's the main theory anyways. Um, and so because of that high metabolism, it takes a lot of um, energy for a cell to divide. And so if a cell is already using all this energy because it's constantly contracting, it kind of had to make this trade-off to where it lost the ability to divide. Um, and that's why I think the heart prefers fatty acids and ketones um, because it does not want to go into um, this, this cancerous state where you can only use glucose. You can't use oxygen, um, which is what these are characteristics of cancer cells. Um, and it becomes rapidly dividing undifferentiated cells because you don't want to do that in, in cells that, that, um, they can't divide and, and are um, more prone to damage. Right. Um, and if it does get damaged, you can't make new ones. And so, um, that there's no mistaking that. So the, the one, a characteristic of a cancer cell is that it, um, it uses primary glucose, which is why you can do those DEXA scans and you give the body glucose and you can find where the cancer is because it's using more glucose. Um, but, um, heart cells prefer fatty acids and ketones. Um, and it's very interesting that ketones are a non-fermentable fuel because when we look at, um, cancer, it's having to rely on fermentation rather than the use of oxygen to make, um, to make fuel make ATP it has to rely on fermentation and ketones are non-fermentable. So it's almost like the heart's using, it has a preference for these ketones that are non-fermentable fuel. So we don't ever get to a cancer state where we'd have damage to cells, um, to the point where, um, they would need to be rapidly dividing as a survival mechanism of cancer. The heart doesn't do that. However, evolution was not counting on this massive change in, in society that leads to the stress response that can force the cells to burn more glucose like I was talking about before. And so when that happens, we get tissue death rather than a cancer cell chooses to rapidly divide and become kind of this problem, but it's a short-term problem that leads to, um, that, that allows the body to live a little bit longer, allows the cell to live a little bit longer, hoping that, it, that uh, the physiology corrects itself. And the heart though, that can't happen. So if that, that surge in adrenaline creates that issue, drives more glucose, we get tissue death rather than rapid dividing tissue. And that's why the heart cancer is so rare. Wow. It's so interesting. We've been fortunate enough to talk to Dr. Thomas Seyfried and Travis Christofferson and people doing research mm. on cancer as a metabolic disease. And it sure seems to make a lot of sense that you could cut off a primary fuel source to cancer cells and see a really positive effect. Even if it's just an adjunct on traditional therapy, I think it's a wonderful way to look at things and provide the body with an alternate fuel source that then also has another benefit. It's like it, it works great both ways. You cut off the sugar and you increase the ketones and both are beneficial. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's, it's almost like the heart's done that itself. Yeah. It know? sure sounds like it. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. so interesting. Okay. Next one. These, these, this is where it gets crazy to me. The heart mm -hmm. is not the sole mover of the blood. The blood creates its own self-propelled mechanism in the blood vessels. Wow. If you ask anybody, anybody what the heart does, they will tell you it is to pump blood and it's pushing blood around the body. And that may not necessarily be the case. Yeah, I think it's definitely not the case. Um, I mean, if you look at the physics behind it, it's it's uh, it's almost impossible for the the heart a heart the size of the one we have to be able to pump blood around the body like that. Um, it's just there's back in the 1800s and and even more recent research has has shown that you need this heart the size of a whale to to do that. Literally. Um, yeah, literally. Wow. wow. Um. So, so yeah. Um. 
besides the physics just not making sense um it, it it's um it's very curious that you know if i was to if i was to pump water up a hill i wouldn't put the pump at the top of the hill and let the water go down and then try and pump it back up the hill right that's creating a lot of work for that pump and so that's exactly what our our heart is it's kind of up here or kind of in the middle and most of our body is below us below the heart um and uh and so the blood is flowing down and then we're expecting the heart to just be able to pump it back up. And, you know, people argue with me and they say, yeah, well, the veins have the one way valves. So when the water flows or the blood flows, then it, it kind of gets prevented from coming back down. And the muscle contraction also leads to, um, um, you know, the, the blood moving. Um, but you know, we lay down all night and, you know, um, our muscles aren't contracting and then, um, the blood kind of goes to the organs, but, yeah. So, and the, but it's actually been proven, you know, this is not like a, you know, a, um, a theory or a philosophy. It's, it's actually been shown like in the forties and the, in the sixties, they, they repeated the experiments where they, you know, they euthanize dogs and, and different animals and they put tracers in the blood and they found that the blood continued to move for up to two hours after the heart stopped wow. pumping. Um, and then, and, and then more recently in the lab of Gerald Pollack, one of his, um, one of his graduate students has proven that uh, this happens in chicken embryos in the, in the blood of chicken embryos and they euthanize the chick and they stop the heart from beating that um, they can keep blood flowing for a very long time. And if they put radiant energy into the system, um, which is like infrared light, um, then, uh, then that blood continues to flow um, indefinitely. Uh, and they've done this in, in other experiments that didn't involve physiology, like just um, different tubes. And so the, the, the way this is happening is that water has the ability to hold energy. Um, and our blood is about half water, a little bit less than half water. And when, when water holds energy, when it gets next to a water loving surface, a hydrophilic surface, it actually structures itself into what's been termed fourth phase water, um, or structured water or exclusion zone water. There's lots of different names for it. Um, and this is, this is, um, it, it's kind of like a, they call it a fourth phase because it's kind of like a gel state. Um, it's not solid liquid or gas. It's kind of gel. It's like jello. Um, and so this happens on hydrophilic surfaces. And, you know, since there's water in the blood and the, the lining of the blood vessels are, are hydrophilic surfaces, this happens on the lining of the blood vessels. Um, and so um, when this happens, because of the way that it forms, it forms this energy gradient um, that, uh, that actually propels flow. It actually creates flow. Um, of, of the fluid that's creating the, the, the fourth phase water, the gel. And so this happens, um, in the lining of the arteries. Um, and, and so that it, it creates like this because of the way that it forms the, the gel like substance is very electronegative in nature. And what's left over is a bunch of, um, hydrogen ions that are positive in nature. And that creates this energy gradient that propels blood flow in one direction. Once it starts going one direction, it kind of stays going that direction. And yes, the heart does do a small amount of pumping, but it's no more like no more than enough to get the blood through the chambers of the heart itself, uh, maybe into the um, the bigger arteries. But then after that, it's it's totally reliant on this self flow mechanism, especially down at the capillary level where where um, nutrient and oxygen exchange is happening in the tissues. Um, if if we didn't have this self propel mechanism, then we would just have a bunch of stagnant hypoxic blood um, in that area. And so, the thing that I, that confirms this for me is that when you look at heart failure, which heart failure is, you know, defined as 
the failure of the heart to pump the blood, you know, because it, it gets deformed. It becomes more like a basketball rather than shaped like a football. And people start to get swelling in their limbs and extremities because there's pooling up of liquid that's not flowing because they think the heart's not doing its job. Um, but when you look at the research on infrared sauna use, putting infrared light into the system of these people with heart failure, their swelling goes down, the size of their heart goes down back to normal. Um, their ejection fraction increases. And it's because we're feeding the system the stimulus that it needs for the blood to flow on its own, like it's supposed to, rather than having to force the heart to burn or to um, pump more than it's supposed to, because we don't have those mechanisms in place. Um, and so that's what confirms it for me. Um, but then the question is, people ask all the time, like, why is the heart there then? You know, if it's not pumping the blood, what's it doing there? Um, and the question is, the answer is two, twofold. Um, one is that the heart is, is uh, it acts more like a hydraulic ram. Um, which is flow operated. Um, so something fluid has to be flowing into the system for a hydraulic ram to work, which is what we've established that the blood is flowing on its own. And then uh, um, when, when you look at the heart muscle itself, it's, it's oriented in a spiral like nature. So the muscles are kind of wrapped around themselves. It's actually one big band of muscle that's wrapped up on itself. Um, and when that, that causes the, like when the heart contracts um, to do so in a spiral like nature. And, um, and so one of the other ways that you can energize water is spiraling it or vortexing it or swishing it around in the presence of oxygen. And there's always oxygen present in the blood. And so, um, so the heart is doing this. When you look at how it flows through the four chambers of the heart um, and the contraction of those chambers, um, and also when it flows through the valves and how it kind of swirls on either side of the valve when it goes through, like the heart is a vortex. It's, a, it's this thing where multiple um, vortexes happen to the, the water and the blood, energizing it. So that when it gets into the periphery, it can actually form the structured water a, a little better. Um, there's no way that it can do it on its own, though, without outside stimuli, but it is helpful in that nature. So in a way, you could say the heart is responsible for the movement of the blood, just not in the way that we thought. It's not this forceful pressure propulsion pump that we talk about. It's this vortexing hydraulic ram. Um, but the other reason it's there is because there's plenty of evidence that shows that if, um, um, like, the, you know, the like the enlarged hearts of endurance athletes because they think that they're more efficient at pumping or they work harder at pumping blood. Um, it's actually because they're more efficient at stopping the flow of blood. Their, their hearts are more efficient at stopping the flow of blood. And that's because um, if I was to go for a run right now and, and my tissues demanded more blood, which the flow of blood is driven largely by tissue demand, um, then all my blood would, would try and go over to the arterial side and to the capillaries to deliver oxygen and nutrients to those tissues. Um, and if I didn't, if I didn't have a heart to slow down that flow as it comes back from the veins, but if it wasn't there to kind of slow it down, then all the, the all the blood would go over to the arterial side, cause a ton of pressure and the venous side would collapse. And so the, the heart is placed here in the middle of the system, like it is to maintain the pressure between the two systems during exertion. Um, cause if it wasn't there to do that, it'd be bad news. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's pretty fascinating That's and there's, and I, I talk about one study in the book where they, in soccer players, they looked at they looked at this and they said that yes, that um, during exercise, that is what the heart is doing. It's actually slowing the flow of blood. It's not pumping faster um, to deliver more blood. It's pumping faster to keep up with tissue demand, and it's actually slowing it down um, so that it 
uh, maintains pressure in the system. That's so fascinating. And yeah, that covers the last point that I had, um, which is the best way to describe the heart is not a pressure propulsion pump, which you said, but is a hydraulic ram. Uh, I did what you recommended. And I went to YouTube and looked this up and I still don't understand exactly how it works. Um, but we'll link to a video and I would encourage the listeners to go check it out because um, yeah, I, 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 if you can understand that mechanism, I think you'd appreciate it a lot more. Yeah. And you can, you see how the heart is like two hydraulic rams stuck together. Um, like the, the right atrium and the right ventricle are one hydraulic ram and the, the left atrium and the left ventricle are the other hydraulic ram. Um, and, um, and there's, there's some differences and I, but I draw it out in my book, like the analogous structures to the hydraulic ram in the heart and, um, and, um, and the differences I, I highlight those, but they're not, not really that big of a difference. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating. And to me, we're never going to understand things like heart failure until we entertain these, these ideas and this research. Yeah. So interesting. In your book, you also write a little bit about, um, dental work and how that's related to the heart. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah. So there's, there's heavy correlations and they're just correlations, but there's heavy correlations to the health of the mouth and how, you know, the prevalence of, of heart disease, mainly atherosclerosis. Um, and so the main causes of this to me are something called endotoxemia, and then also just mercury exposure, because, you know, for years, dentists are putting amalgam fillings into people's teeth, and that's off-gassing the mercury um, into our bodies. Um, and so mercury, you know, I talk about studies in the book to show that the more mercury in our body we have, the more atherosclerosis we have. Um, so, um, so putting metal in our teeth was not a good idea for such a long time. But then there's also something called endotoxemia, and that is when we get bacteria that's supposed to be in our digestive tract that gets into the bloodstream when it's not supposed to be there. Um, cause our digest, like our gut is supposed to be sealed off. So the bacteria doesn't leak into the gut, but we have leaky gut these days. It's kind of a buzzword. Um, but also the health of the mouth, um, that's a part of the digestive tract. And if we get like gingivitis where the gums are bleeding, like that's a direct pathway from the mouth into the blood. So bacteria get in there, but also we can get things, um, like if people have had root canals, or they've had teeth pulled that weren't cleaned out properly. They can get cavitations with sort of infections in the jaw. And that can lead to uh, this dead tissue um, in, in the body that has no blood supply now because the tooth is gone or the tooth has been drilled out through root canal. And there's, you can't really feel it because there's no nerve there anymore because that's been drilled out too. And so we've got this infection that's festering in there and it's leaking in through the tissues into the bloodstream. And the body can't get to it. It can't fight it because, like I said, there's no blood supply. There's no nerve or anything like that. Um, but it just, it fascinates me and blows my mind that, you know, if you ask any general surgeon, would you ever leave dead tissue in the body? They say, absolutely not. But that's exactly what we do with a root canal. We kill the tissue, which is the, the tooth, and we just leave it there. Um, and no matter how hard they try and clean it out to make sure that it doesn't form an infection, there's little, there's always little dental tubules and things like that where bacteria can hide and it stays in there and it causes, causes issues. Um, and, um, and, and uh, when uh, there's, there's plenty of anecdotal evidence when people get their, their teeth cleaned out, they, and they go to a dentist that knows what they're doing, um, and knows about all these things, because most dentists don't know this, these kinds of things, um, then, uh, their health dramatically turns around because those endotoxins stop leaking in. Um, and so those endotoxins, when your body attacks those endotoxic bacteria, it destroys the cell and the cell releases the endotoxins. And those endotoxins lead to a lot of oxidative stress, which we talked about which is the main driver of damage to the lining of the artery, which then forces it to repair itself. Um, uh, and it repairs itself using cholesterol and, and calcium. Um, but yeah, so, so that's the, that's the dental and, uh, heart disease, uh, connection. 
Yeah, it just it pisses me off all over again that I had to get my my wisdom teeth extracted as a precaution. <laughs> there they weren't a problem, but they took them out as an adult. All four developed dry sockets, and nobody ever talked to me about proper breathing, nasal breathing, tongue placement, all these things that we know are so important for the mouth forming properly and giving us enough space in the jaw. And, and they're extracting all these teeth and putting harmful materials in, in our mouths. It's absolutely bonkers. Totally crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, and, and the fact that there are still dentists out there who are putting amalgam fillings in, fillings in is, is crazy to me. Wow. So interesting. Okay. So we've learned all of these different things about the heart. Um, you know, not on a lot of people's radars. Now let's talk about what do we do about them? What practically can we take from all of this? What are some of your favorite practices and how can we be thinking about some of these things in maybe in, in a list of priority, like what should be the most important things versus other things that we can refine later on? Yeah. So in the book, I go back to like the three imbalances and those are poor metabolic health or, or metabolic inflexibility, um, high inflammation or oxidative stress. Um, I kind of put them hand in hand, even though they're kind of different things. Um, but, and then, um, and then imbalance in the autonomic nervous system. So we'll start with metabolic health. You know, the number one way to, to achieve metabolic health is through diet, um, through eating a correct diet. And so that to me, um, metabolic health can be achieved by a lot of different diets. Um, and it's, it's mostly about eating whole foods and avoiding vegetable oils, processed grains, and processed sugars. Like those are the three evilest thing, if that's a word, um, that are driving poor metabolic health. So we avoid those things. You're going to get a pretty good chance. Eat whole foods. Um, I think animal foods are incredibly important. Um, and, and, you know, our evolution, uh, was driven by them. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of different nutrients in animal foods that we don't get anywhere else that I think are essential for, for optimal health. It doesn't mean that people can't, you know, totally, um, uh, emit, uh, animal foods from the diet and still in, in today's modern age and still, um, live. Um, but eventually I think they're going to be deficient in nutrients and their health is going to suffer. Um, and so that's, that's metabolic health, then reducing inflammation and oxidative stress. Um, so you know, oxidative stress and inflammation can be caused by just psychological stress, stress itself. It can be caused by poor diet and eating lots of toxins in your food, but also, um, having a higher glucose-based metabolism. But the, one of the other main ones that people don't talk about a lot is toxin exposure. And so I tell people to look into their life and, and, um, avoid all the toxins they can and not freak out about the ones they can't, because that's not helpful either. Um, but, you know, look into your life and make sure your food is the cleanest it can be, make sure your water is the cleanest it can be, um, make sure that your, um, air, at least the air in your home or the air in your bedroom is as clean as it can be. Um, look at all your cosmetics and cleaning products and make sure there's just the cleanest possible things they can be so that you're not exposing yourself unnecessarily to these toxins when you don't have to, because all of those things are um, you know, relatively easy for your body to get rid of, but if you're constantly being exposed to them all day long, then to just you're always having to deal with them. And there's plenty of evidence that things like BPA and I talked about like the mercury and other heavy metals are are causing uh, inflammation and oxidative stress that causes atherosclerosis. And then the last one is is balance in the autonomic nervous system. And so this is directly measured through heart rate variability. Um, and um, so that's kind of an important biomarker that I think is overlooked a lot. Um, but, you know, when we look at what creates balance in, in our autonomic nervous system, we want to, oftentimes we want to add things to, to we want to keep our lives the same and then add things to it to try and counteract things. And so we see that a lot with like people who don't want to change their diet. They want to eat the same things they're eating, but then they add a bunch of supplements to think, uh, think oh, I'm healthier now, but that's just never going to work. 
It's the same thing with this. So if you don't identify the things that are creating the imbalance, the stressors that are creating the imbalances, um, and you don't work to remove those, if you can, sometimes you can't, um, if you don't work to remove those, um, or at least change your perception of those and change your, your reaction to those, then you're not really doing anything, um, um, that beneficial. I mean, you can keep your life the same as it was and just make time for nature and make time for meditation and make time for, and all those things are beneficial. But if you're not removing the thing that's creating the imbalance in the first place, you're really just, you know, chasing all the fires without putting out the arsonist or taking out the arsonist, you know? Um, I, and so, um, when I, when we look into our lives and we, we think about which stresses we want to eliminate, um, the research shows that it's the stresses that make us feel like we're out of control or we're in in an unpredictable situation that are the most detrimental to health and cause the most inflammation, oxidative stress and imbalance in the autonomic nervous system. Those are the ones. So when you think about which things you're trying to eliminate to have the most bang for your buck, it's, it's the stressors that make you feel like you're out of control. Um, or you're in an unpredictable situation. And, and so that could be, you may not be able to get rid of those, but changing your perspective of those too is also very important. Um, cause you could say, there's nothing I can do about it and stop worrying about it. Or you could c- consistently be, um, stressed about it or freaking out about it, you know, and that's not, that's not helpful either. So just to kind of, you know, um, point that out to people, but then there's all the other things that people do. Like I mentioned, like nature exposure, uh, positive social relationships, um, you know, sunlight, um, exercise, these different things that that stimulate, you know, cold therapy, hot cold therapy, that stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system and, and help get things back online. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, I love the research that you have cited before, where they looked at stress levels in a company, and and stress levels mm. were similar, but the, the the people that had control over their schedule had less detrimental effects than the others that didn't. And I love the way that you put it. it like there are some things you can go out and do and change. There's also mindset things that you can do. Like you can mm-hmm. take a practice of stoicism and and start to really understand the dichotomy of control. What can I control? What can't I control? Where am I going to place my values and my character? What am I going to worry about? And leave everything else just to go because you, again, you, it's like complaining about the weather or something. Like it doesn't do anything, but but you know have a negative effect on yourself. Yeah, for sure. Um, and and you just gotta you gotta realize that, and you gotta kind of gain control over it with with your mind. You know, like you may not be able to control it you know, by changing it directly, but you can change your perspective of it. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, you make me feel better and better about something we did a few weeks ago. One of my clients was getting rid of their infrared sauna. They needed a new power unit. We had to call an electrician to install a new outlet, but oh my goodness, that is the most amazing thing I've added to my life this year to be able to go in at night after, you know, my one or two meals in the day and to be able to just kind of relax and, and sit in that sauna has been absolutely game changing. I I absolutely love it. So I'm glad uh, that it seems to cause a lot of positive uh, effects as well. Yeah, definitely. Saunas are amazing tools, especially during the winter. So, Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> can't wait. If I'm enjoying it this much in the summertime here in Utah and it's like 90 degrees outside, I'm, I, I can't wait to use it in the wintertime. Um, I do awesome. want to talk a little bit about the, the, um, the chapter in your book called Two-Faced Medicine. Can you tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. that, uh, why you included that in the book? Yeah. Um, well, I included that in the book mostly because I had a heart attack. Um, and you know, that may blow people's minds, but yeah, I had a heart attack about a year and a half ago. Um, and, and, and so at that time, you know, obviously all this research is done about the heart, all the things, the way I live my life and everything, I was incredibly like, um, defeated and, and, uh, felt like, you know, there's no way that anybody would listen to me anymore about this information that I have. And then my experience in the hospital just showed me, I, I spent three days in the hospital, which is 
a short amount of time for someone who's had a heart attack, but, um, but it was just so, um, reinforcing of how far off the point that Western medicine has gotten as far as creating health. I'm incredibly grateful for the people that, you know, saved my life that day. Um, however, the follow-up care was totally off the mark and, and I was, I just felt like there was no way I couldn't release this book, um, because of the information there, because my, my goal in releasing this book was, was not to be right about something or to, to say that everybody else is wrong, or at least people in Western medicine is wrong. It's, it's to open the discussion about heart disease and find the actual cause because clearly our way of approaching it is not working. Um, at least the, the Western medicine way. And I, and I was unable to prevent it in myself, which means that I don't fully totally understand everything. I mean, I have things that predispose me to it. I was, I was under the most amount of stress I've ever been in my life when it happened. I'm type one diabetic, which heavily predisposed me to heart disease. So there are things that were there, but it just goes to show that even after writing this book, I don't fully understand it. And we really need to open this conversation and start um, asking these questions so that we can actually find the solution. Um, and, um, and I think I, I think that my book is much more along the lines of the solution I would want to go down. Um, but the one in Western medicine is, is clearly, uh, more off the solution. And the most disturbing thing in the hospital was, was that I was trying to talk to the doctors and I was open to their recommendations and their knowledge because I just had a heart attack and I wanted to, you know, the best care. Um, but anytime I tried to open the conversation about something, they just shut down the conversation. Um, and it was just about my own care, you know, about, about me, you know, they just shut it down and just were frustrated. And it was very clear that in my chart notes, well, it was clear because I asked for my chart notes after I left, but they put down the notes that I was, um, um, how did they put it? They put, um, non-compliant. I was a non-compliant patient. And so every new doctor that came to, to be my, cause there was all kinds of doctors in and out of there all the time. Every new doctor came in and saw that and they, they branded me as non-compliant. They're like, Oh, this guy's probably going to be difficult, you know? And, and all I wanted to do was have discussions about my health, my own care. Um, and so it, it was incredibly disturbing. And I just wanted to, I, I had, I said that I needed to release the book just for, just to open the conversation um, and, uh, and help figure out maybe one day figure out what exactly did happen. Uh, I mean, I know what happened to me and I have theories as to what happened, um, and why it happened, but, um, I don't think we'll ever really know for sure. Unless we, unless we open up the conversation, you actually literally lived an episode of Seinfeld. Like when they marked Elaine's chart that she was difficult and she couldn't get an appointment with anybody. You actually lived through that. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I just, I think about, I think about, first of all, myself, like you're much more of an expert on the heart, obviously, than I am. You were asking good questions. What the hell would I do in that situation? And then I think like the general public who knows next to nothing about this stuff, that that's really rough. They, they wouldn't even yeah. know where to begin to ask questions on some of this stuff. And even just talking about like hospital food, the things that they're bringing you to eat is like, oh my goodness, it, it blows my mind. Yeah, I was basically fasting the entire time I was in the hospital for the most part because the food was just terrible. Um, and I just didn't want to eat it. And, and it was during COVID. So no one was allowed to visit me and bring me food. Um, so it was, it was pretty, pretty dire in there, but you know, I was used to fasting. So it wasn't that big of a deal. Wow. Well, yeah, I'm just, I so respect that type of decision that you had to make. Um, because I would, I would feel the same way. Like how, how can I talk about this when I just went through this, 
yet mm. it gives so much authenticity to the information and it really helps me appreciate it a lot more. And I'm so glad that you were very courageous and decided to go through that and release the book with all the information. I really hope it reaches a lot of people because it is a wonderful resource. And, and again, changing that conversation can be really difficult. Just having the conversation can be very difficult, but that is the key to, to get the ball moving in the right direction on some of these things. And so I really um, am very grateful for you and everything that you've gone through and, and, and so grateful for you to come on the show today. Can you tell people where they can go to find you, connect with you and your work and find your book? Yeah. Well, first off, thank you for saying that. It means, it means a lot. Um, but yeah, so people can find me at resourceforhealth.com. That's my website where I do my health coaching and, um, my books are on there. My blog is on there. Um, and then the book is on Amazon. It's also like uh, books a million and Barnes and Noble, and it's on the publisher's website, Chelsea green. So if people want to avoid Amazon for whatever reason, um, and, uh, and then I'm on social media on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, just DR Stephen Hussey, um, is where people can find me and, and reach out to me. That's awesome. We will link to all of that in the show notes, Dr. Stephen Hussey, author of understanding the heart. Thank you so very much again for everything that you've gone through in your life. Thank you for your curious nature and chasing down some of these leads. And, and again, exactly what you set out to do. I think you did perfectly. You, you created a way to understand this stuff that mere mortals like me can, can appreciate and understand and, and hopefully change the conversation around this. And, you know, maybe we talk in 10 years and you can say that, you know, we're moving forward finally with heart disease and we're finally, you're chasing the right things down. So thank you so very much for you and all of your work. And thank you for taking time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for helping me spread the message. Absolutely. Such an honor. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. Thank you again so very much for continuing to listen to and support Boundless Body Radio. This little passion project that we started almost two years ago just continues to steadily grow. We are reaching more people than ever, and we keep receiving so many inspirational and amazing messages from you. We see it in all the reviews that we get, and we really appreciate that. So thank you so very much for that. We love understanding which guests you really connect with and which content you really appreciate the most. We wanted to take a second also to give a huge shout out to our amazing guests. We love the people that we've been able to host and all their amazing content in these awesome conversations. And we have to say in the pipeline, we already have lots of great episodes that will be coming to you soon and lots of great guests. Some will be new to the show and others will be familiar to you if you have been listening to our show for a while. So look forward to that on our website, which is myboundlessbody.com. We are still running a lot of the same offers that we have been running for the last few months. These offers are complimentary, and we've really had a great time connecting with people all over the world who are taking advantage of these. So if you go to our website, which again is myboundlessbody.com, on the main page, you'll find a button that says book now. You can book either a functional movement screen, which is a movement screening tool used to evaluate movement patterns to optimize mobility, fitness, and injury prevention, we do that virtually through Zoom with a bit of creativity. You can book that session, which takes about 30 minutes and is complimentary. You can also see another booking for a 30 minute consultation with us where we can really chat about anything that you like. We can talk about fitness or nutrition or help you come up with a plan for you to be able to reach your goals. As always, it really helps us grow if you leave us a rating and review. So please be sure to go to Apple, leave us a five-star rating and review. And thank you as always for listening to Boundless Body Radio.